You are listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Good morning. As Pastor Matt said, my name is Greg. I'm a, a resident here at Liberty. Our, uh, our text this morning is going to be from 1 Kings 21. Uh, if you're using a black hardcover Bible around you, it should be on page 303. As you're getting there, uh, quick poll. Raise your hand if you have ever played Bible roulette. That, that game where like, maybe you're struggling with something, just went through a breakup, and so you grab your Bible, you look to God, and you say, God, show me what to do. And you open to a random spot, put your finger down in a random place and say, what does that have to do? And you're just left there, weirded out somewhere in the book of Leviticus, wondering what (laughs) menstrual laws have to do with your parents' divorce or something. (laughs) Not a great hermeneutical strategy, not a way that we should read our Bibles. But as I was reading this week, I, I read of a time where Bible roulette actually turned out well. This was a man who had never read his Bible before. He had no experience with Christianity before and had grown up in India, oppressed, was exploited, was treated with contempt, experienced all kinds of violence at the hands of his government. And Chris Wright tells about this man. He says, It happened that the first thing that he read in his Bible was the story of Naboth. Ahab, and Jezebel in 1 Kings 21. He was astonished to find that it was all about greed for land, abuse of power, corruption of the courts, and violence against the poor, things that he himself was all too familiar with. But even more amazing was the fact that God took Naboth's side and not only accused Ahab and Jezebel of their wrongdoing, but also took vengeance upon them. Here was a God of real justice, a God who identified the real villains and who took real action against them. I never knew such a God existed, he exclaimed. I never knew such a God existed. The story we're about to read in 1 Kings 21 is that story. It is a story about oppression, about people who have influence and authority who misuse it to hurt people. It's about an innocent man being put to death. It's also about the hope that maybe God really is going to do something about the wickedness in our world after all. That despite all the abuses of power in our world today and the corrupt government leaders, maybe there really could be a happy ending to the universe. The time of Israel's history that we're reading about is a difficult one. There are 20 kings recounted in the book of Kings. First and second Kings is really one book, and 20 kings are recounted, and zero of those kings are good. Zero for 20, F minus minus, all of them are trash. And Ahab is by far the worst. He marries a Canaanite woman. He formally institutes idol worship. He oppresses God's people. One scholar introduces Ahab as the vile human toad who squatted upon the throne of Israel. And here in our text, this vile human toad is going to have an innocent man put to death. And so 
Read along with me, starting in verse 1. We're going to read the whole chapter of 1 Kings 21. Now Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel, beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it's near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it, or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house, vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel his wife said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived in Naboth, with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast, and set, two, and set Naboth at the head of his people, and set two worthless men opposite him, and let them bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of his city, the elders and the leaders who lived in his city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them. As it was written in the letters that she had sent them, they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of his people. And two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. Verse 17, Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria, Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick up your own blood. Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male or male, bond or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah. For the anger to which you have provoked me and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, The dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And if anyone, and anyone of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. 
There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord, like Ahab, whom Jezebel his wife incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. And when Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring the disaster upon his house. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Father, by your spirit, I pray that you would open our ears to hear what you have said to us in your word. Guide us in your truth, convict us of sin, encourage us in Christ-likeness, and fill us anew with your spirit, we pray. Amen. This morning, we're going to talk about three things. Naboth's determination, Ahab's violation, and Yahweh's extermination. I hope you appreciate the rhyme. I, I worked unreasonably hard on it. And uh, it doesn't actually help you remember anything, but it's nice to know that if the whole pastor thing doesn't work out, I always have a career in Christian rap. So <laughs> Naboth's determination, Ahab's violation, and Yahweh's extermination. Yo. First, we're going to talk about Naboth's determination. Our story begins with Ahab giving a real estate proposal to an ordinary Israelite named Naboth. Ahab, as we've already learned from 1 Kings 18, has a palace already in Jezreel. So this one that we're reading about in our text is more of a vacation home. He perhaps subscribes to an ancient version of like better homes and gardens and notices that Naboth's vineyard would be an excellent place to grow his cucumbers. And so he goes to Naboth in verse 2. He says, "'Give me your vineyard.'" that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it's near my home and I'll give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I'll give you its value in money. Here is where we see Naboth's determination. At first glance, this seems like a perfectly reasonable real estate transaction. Ahab understands that this vineyard means a lot to Naboth. Right? This vineyard had probably been in his family for generations. Naboth grew up playing tag among the vines, One time he got grounded because his uncle caught him shooting grapes out of a slingshot at the neighbor girl he had a crush on. He has memories here. This is a family business. And so King Ahab says, listen, Naboth, there's a seller's market. I'll either give you a better vineyard than this one or I'll give you cash for it. I want to be fair. It's your choice. What do you say? What does Naboth say? He surprisingly exclaims in verse 3, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. No deal, Ahab. Why does he respond like this? Why so vehemently? The Lord forbid. Well, it's because Ahab's offer is not as straightforward and reasonable as it might initially appear. In Leviticus 25, Numbers 36, throughout the book of Deuteronomy, Israelites are forbidden from selling their land because the land ultimately belongs to God. This is the land promised to them by Yahweh. So for Israel, in many senses, a selling of the physical land was tantamount to a rejection of the covenant itself, even a dismissal of Yahweh himself. And so 
Naboth says, no deal. This land is not mine to sell. Now there's no doubt about it. Naboth could have sold his vineyard to the king, been better off financially, and no one would have batted an eye. This was the financial opportunity of a lifetime. It's not every day a king comes to you with a business proposal. Think of all the good Naboth could have done. It would have been so easy for him to rationalize his decision. Think of the people he could have employed, the money he could have given away to the poor, the cash he could have put in his kids' college funds. But Naboth is a righteous man who's determined to do what is right in the sight of the Lord, not man, to please Yahweh, not his friends, to make God, not his family, proud. Naboth had no idea that thousands of years later, people would be sitting in Camp Hill, Pennsylvania on this dreary day, reading about him and admiring him. For all Naboth knew, he was an ordinary, run-of-the-mill Israelite that just wanted to please God by picking some grapes. He was a person who pursued righteousness in the midst of faithlessness and when no one else was looking. Are you that kind of person too? Are you like Naboth in a culture like ours that has normalized sin? Be like Naboth. When the jokes at work begin that you feel deep down like these things shouldn't be laughed about, be like Naboth. When you know, like, this is gossip, but also you want the tea and you want to feel included, be like Naboth. When you are home alone and the only light on is the glow of your computer screen, be like Naboth. Naboth was a faithful man, committed to walking in the way of the Lord, even when no one else was. That's Naboth's determination. Next, Ahab's violation. As we mentioned before, Ahab's sin is not that he wanted a vegetable garden. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with carrots. We probably should all eat more vegetables. The sin of Ahab is greed. Ahab's greed causes him to ignore God's commands about the land in order to get what he wanted. Here is a king. He's a king, right? This is just his summer home in Jezreel. And yet he's fanatically obsessed with obtaining a small vineyard outside the one wall. His greed has created in him an insatiable lust for more. More, more, more. It's never enough. He's the kind of man that gets fixated, obsessed, preoccupied with getting that one thing. Oh, how much better life will be when you get that one thing. And he works hard and he gets it and he's finally satisfied until he's not. And then it's on to the next palace, the next vineyard, the next place to grow his green beans. Does this desire sound familiar? Jesus tells us in Luke 12, He says, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Todi Merida points out that for no other sin does Jesus say, watch out. It's just greed. Perhaps this is because nobody thinks they're greedy. 
Perhaps this is because vice often masquerades as virtue and greed is impressively good at putting on makeup. It's easy for greed to paint itself with the colors of righteousness. It's easy for our greed to put on the costume of fiscal responsibility, saving for the future, redecorating. You don't need to be wealthy to be greedy. You just need to have the Zillow app downloaded or have an Amazon Prime account. I came across this quote from one of Augustine's sermons a few weeks ago. And listen, this is, this is Augustine, not me. So if you get mad about it, send him an email. I'm just quoting him. He says, Don't be sparing of transitory treasures, of vain wealth. Don't increase your money under the guise of family piety. I'm saving it for my children. A marvelous excuse. He's saving it for his children. Let's see, shall we? Your father saves it for you. You save it for your children, your children for their children, and so on throughout all generations, and yet not one of them is going to carry out the commandments of God. Why don't you rather pay it all over to him who made you out of nothing? The one who made you is the one who feeds you with the things he has made. He is the one who also will feed your children. Sheesh, right? I'm not saying... And I don't think Augustine was saying that it's inherently wrong to save money for your kids. In fact, I think it's probably a wise thing. Like you you should open a 529 account. College is stupid expensive. I am saying, watch out. Watch out. Do not too quickly dismiss the possibility that your heart has plated the dung of greed with a thin veneer of family piety gold. That's the sin of Ahab. And he he doesn't get what he wants, and so he's devastated that he can't have his little veggie garden. And he throws a massive hissy fit, a kingly temper tantrum. He locks himself in his room and settles down for a royal pout, determining not even to eat because he's so upset. And Jezebel, his wife, who's arguably even eviler than he is, wonders, man, why hasn't Ahab come down for dinner? And goes to the king in verse 7 saying, Do you now govern Israel? Arise, eat bread, let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. In essence, she says, aren't you the king? Who is this peasant ordering you around? Why are you listening to some yokel, local yokel, uneducated, blue-collar grape picker? Be a king. So what she does next is just pure evil. She uses Ahab's letterheads, puts a hit out on Naboth, wrongly accuses him of cursing God and cursing the king, which he's done neither of those two things. Her hitmen succeed in the task. Naboth is killed. The king takes over the vineyard. Greed is the sin of Ahab. Ahab is in narrative form a picture of James 1.15 then desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin. Sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. And in Ahab's case, this death is painfully literal. That's Ahab's violation. So we've had Naboth's determination, Ahab's violation, finally Yahweh's extermination. 
As our story reaches a climax, Elijah, who is sent by the Lord, goes to Ahab and he says, Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, the dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And anyone of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. At the end of our narrative, Ahab expresses something that resembles repentance, which is probably not genuine. The wrath of God, the justice of God still comes for Ahab. What happens at the end of our text with his quote-unquote repentance is not a cancellation of justice, more like a rain delay. Ahab does die at the end of chapter 22. He gets shot between the plates of his armor at random by an unnamed archer. Jezebel does get eaten by dogs at the end of 2 Kings 9. And God's violent wrath is poured out on them for what they did here to Naboth. And to our modern sensitivities, the violence of God can be uncomfortable. The justice of God can make us queasy. Especially in the Old Testament, as we've been reading and will continue to read stories of Elijah and Elisha, they're filled to the brim with divinely sanctioned violence. Second Kings begins with King Ahaziah taking a nasty spill off of his roof, and so he wants to get better and he sends people to Baal. To, to get Baal to make him better, which is obviously a big no-no. And so Elijah comes and calls down fire from heaven and, and burns to death a hundred of King Ahaziah's soldiers. Then he goes to the king himself and prophesies over him, and the king dies. A few weeks ago, we, we read of Elijah bringing 450 prophets of Baal to the banks of a river and, and killing them all. It's violence. And stories like this can seem unnerving. Why is God so violent? Have you ever heard the phrase, uh, first world problems? Right, I, I couldn't find my AirPods this morning. First world problems. The, uh, the Wi-Fi on the plane is a little too slow. First world problems. The, the, uh, the car in front of me could have made it through the yellow light and I could have been with them, but they stopped. First world problems. Finding the violence of God in the Old Testament uncomfortable. Feeling like we need to apologize for how God acts in his justice. By and large, is a first world problem. It's a first world problem. We may, in our air-conditioned buildings, hundreds of years removed from the event, squirm a little when God tells Elijah to cut the throats of the prophets of Baal. But church, if it were your child, two years before that, pulled screaming from your arms in order to sacrifice to that Baal by one of those prophets, I think we might feel differently about it. 
if Naboth were not just some obscure, great-picking Israelite in the Old Testament, but were one of your closest friends who was dragged outside the city and unjustly beaten to death with rocks, I think we might feel differently about Jezebel being eaten by dogs. For the Naboths of this world, the justice of God is the mercy of God. The justice of God in this story is not a problem to be solved, but to the Naboths of this world, a pillow to rest their heads on at night. Perhaps you are a Naboth in this world, in this life, or even in this season of life. Perhaps you have been mistreated, abused, taken advantage of by people that should have known better and people who were in authority over you, by people who had influence, whom you trusted, maybe even for your faith. Perhaps you are a Naboth and nobody understands or even knows about it, how they laughed at you and made you feel, how you were mistreated in the workplace. What that man did to you when you were just a child. If you are a Naboth in this life, God wants to remind you through this text that he sees your affliction. It has not gone unnoticed. If you are a Naboth in this world, God wants to remind you through this text that not only does he see your affliction, but he has promised to do something about it. The story is a reminder that we need a better king. Not one that's going to use his influence for his own gain, but one who's going to lay his life down for us. A king like Jesus. A king who will never take advantage of us or abuse us. One who will deal justly with those who afflict us. A king who sees the Naboths of this world and identifies them and comes to rescue them. And to be honest, like I, I wrestle with the timing. The question of where is God's justice now bothers me. But we shouldn't let our confusion with the timing of Yahweh cloud out the very real reality that it will come. Maybe not this Tuesday or the one after that, but come it will. Because the story of Naboth is a shadow of 2 Thessalonians 1, where Paul says that God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Church, God will intervene to bring justice to his wronged people. We have a God who persistently identifies with the oppressed, abused, and downtrodden. He not only sees you in your suffering, but has promised to do something about it. In fact, he has done something about it. Our God was the ultimate Naboth. Our God took on flesh, walked this world as one of the Naboths. He too was poor, rejected by his friends and family. He too was a righteous man who acted to please Yahweh. 
He was not greedy like Ahab, but gave up his own life voluntarily. He too was taken outside the city and killed unjustly for something that he did not do. If you are a Naboth in this life, look to King Jesus who has come, who identifies with you, and who will someday return to make everything new. The hard truth this morning is that maybe you're more like Ahab than Naboth. Maybe you're more like the greedy man who uses his influence and power for his own gain that you would like to admit. If we're honest with ourselves, and I think we're all a little bit of a little bit greedy. We all have a little bit of Ahab in us. We're all a little bit of both. Nobody is a perfect villain or a perfect victim. We're all a confusing jumbled mix. And if you are like Ahab, then God wants to tell you this. The God who is a God of unimaginable justice is also in Jesus Christ a God of unimaginable mercy. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ shows us that while greed is serious, we deserve to die like Ahab. While it is serious, the death of Jesus Christ is sufficient even to cover your greed. And if you run to Jesus Christ now, you will not be met with a stern look, a frown, a wagging finger, or a list of demands. Just mercy. Just mercy. So leave behind your money. Throw aside your greed and your unquenchable lust for more. And let us run to Jesus Christ, the King who identifies with the Naboths of this world and someday who will return to make everything new. Will you pray with me? Father, as we think about the suffering in this world, in this sin-soaked universe, We, we pray that your son would come back quickly. That he would return to make everything new, to pour out his justice, to end our suffering, to make everything sad untrue. We look forward to that day. And in the meantime, I pray that you would give us your spirit to sustain us. Help us run to Jesus Christ trusting in him, the perfect king for salvation. It's in his name and for his sake I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.